Today's episode with Seth Godin and Hugh McLeod is brought to you by Henderson Shapiro Peck, a non-traditional marketing firm at the crossroads of strategy and creativity, where relationships are built project by project. Good morning, and welcome back to this very special edition of Intrepid Radio, the show that brings you the world's most intrepid people. Today's broadcast is the reason someone like me gets into podcasting. I have the pleasure to welcome two very special guests. The first is best-selling author and chief ruckus maker, Seth Godin. Welcome, sir. Thank you, Todd. It's an honor to be with you. Seth, I have to be honest, it was my plan to invite you to be my guest on the 100th episode of this show, but it looks like you'll have to settle for episode 79. Even better. <laughs> We're also joined by best-selling author, artist, and cartoonist, Hugh McLeod. You might know him as Gaping Void. Welcome back to the show, Hugh. Hi, Todd. How's it going? In the unlikely event you don't know Hugh McLeod, if you've read my blog over these last four-plus years, you've undoubtedly seen his artwork on virtually every post I've published. Gentlemen, it's so, so glad to have you here. With the two of you, we could literally discuss 1,000 different subjects, but we're here to talk about a recent collaboration of yours, a book called V is for Vulnerable. It's written by Seth, illustrated by Hugh. Seth, how in the heck do you even describe this book? I don't think there's a category or genre in Amazon that really fits. Well, what I'd like to think about it as is if Dr. Seuss wrote a book that could make a middle manager cry, that's what we set out to do. <laughs> well, I would describe it as Dr. Seuss for adults. Uh, you know, there's this idea that as kids, we're fearless and we're creative. We draw, we, we play pretend, we build things. But as we grow up, our culture and our educational system just beats this out of us. Uh, was this book a way to kind of hammer that point home that we should all start acting, creating like a kid again? You know, when Hugh started, he drew his business his uh, cartoons on the back of business cards, sitting in pubs and handing them to people. And the magic of it was the format, that he wasn't publishing them in a newspaper and he wasn't using a fancy easel and stuff. It was on a business card, that the format matters. So what I was trying to do when I thought of this book was play on our Proustian recollection of what a kid's book means to us. And by using the format of a kid's book, by having the book be only 26 pages of text, uh, by having it be a book that you can read the first time in five minutes, but maybe come back to 10, 20 times over the course of a couple weeks, I want to get under your skin and remind you of what it was like to be four and hopeful and to be seven and brave. Because we're capable of being just as hopeful and capable of being just as brave if we choose. And maybe a book this accessible and, and thanks to Hugh, this beautiful, uh, will get under your skin and set you free. I, I wanted to say, you know, those children's books that still resonate with adults are wonderful, like The Given Tree by Shel Silverstein or The Little Prince or so, some of the more uh, Dr. Seuss's more darker books. I mean, they have a certain resonance to them that gets, you know, like, like Seth said, under your skin. I want to know from Seth, Seth, did you like just write the ABCD and just like a chapter, just like a, and then say, hey, this would be a great children's book. Let's make it into a children's book. Or did, did you, did the idea of a children's book pop in your head and then you wrote a book around it? I, yeah. I never asked you that before. Yeah. The way it came to be is The Icarus Deception took me about 20 years to write. But the actual, oh, yeah. but the actual typing of it didn't take that long. 
you know, I worked on it for a month and then I put it away for six months and then I worked on it again for a month or two. I did a lot of research and writing. And as I was writing and I was starting to get to the end at like 2.04 p.m., I started in an alphabet just to sort of summarize the thing, starting with A is for anxiety, because I thought the juxtaposition of anxiety with an abacatory alphabet thing was, was perverse. And less, less than nine minutes later, the alphabet was finished. And so oh, wow. I typed the book in 10 minutes. And then I looked at what I had typed and said, yeah, not only am I going to keep this in the book, because I end up discarding about half of what I write, but I ended up keeping sure. it. And then I said, you know, as you know, Hugh, the back wall of my office has one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eleven pieces of your framed art on it. And wow. I looked up and I said, wow, why don't I call Hugh? So I did. And you being you said, let's do it. And we were off. To the so it was thrilling in that. It didn't take very long in terms of typing or drawing for either of us, but it took a lifetime to figure out how to do it. Yeah, it was, it's kind of like interesting for me because like I couldn't just like pick my own word for A. You know, I had to like work within the the parameters you gave me. Some were easier than others. Anxiety was for, like A is for anxiety is pretty easy. You just make that into a kind of anxious looking face. I, 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 the, my, I, think, I think my favorite one was like heroes and hipsters. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> And I like I like I like V is for vulnerable. They're like the the two headed V who's like just hatched out of a nest, which is on the cover. I think I, I quite like why V for vulnerable. Why not F is for feedback or H is for heroes? Why why'd you title it V is for vulnerable? I can't believe I never asked you that either. <laughs> well, you know it's funny because neither one of us, you know, we're not Hal David and Burt Bacharach or Elton John and that other guy. Uh, yeah. We're not lifetime collaborators. Uh, it was fascinating and thrilling to me how delightful it was to work with you and see what was oh, in my you. what was in my head come to life. There were two or three letters that Hugh and I argued about a lot, and it was fun to go back and forth about that. But I was very wary of stepping on his toes because he's such a huge talent that I felt like I had no business explaining to him that a Zebec actually has three masks, even if he only wanted to draw one. Um, but but that, to answer your question... Some uh, were harder than others. Some were harder than others, I have to say. Exactly. Uh, to answer your question, it's called V is for Vulnerable because Brene Brown opened a Pandora's box with her books about vulnerability. And mm-hmm. as soon as you make it clear to the would-be artist that making art is about being vulnerable to the world many of them run screaming from the room. And so I wanted, right. a, I wanted a title that was as visceral and raw as anything in the book because I didn't want to hide what the, book right. trying, what the book was trying to do. Yeah, as opposed to uh, X for Zedek, because who cares about ships, you know? I mean, <laughs> it's not like, it doesn't, it doesn't like make us like light up in fear when you say that, you know? And uh, of course, this, this is all done by... This is all done as part of this massive Kickstarter project, which which you did, and I mean, I mean, this is these for vulnerables were like really the just one part of it. Tell tell us about the other books, because I mean they're like one of them's massive, and then the other one is uh, not so massive, but it was like a big, it was it was like a big, um, and not only that, you did a Kickstarter project and got Penguin Portfolio on board, which is like really amazing. Well, the reason I did the Kickstarter project was not because. I needed to raise 
cash to do a book. The fact no. is, no author really needs to raise cash to do a book because if you want to get your book in the world, make a PDF file, email it to 50 friends and see if it spreads. Right. Right? That we've made exactly. it so that the actual cash out of pocket expense of typical books. Now there are exceptions of, you know, four years of researching Eleanor Roosevelt. But in general, the out of pocket expense of writing a book is small. What I wanted yeah. to show authors is that organizing your tribe, organizing your fans, getting 10,000 books pre-sold, that's mm-hmm. the hard part of book publishing. And if you sure. can figure out how to do the hard part, then every publisher in New York will line up to be your partner because it's, the stuff after that isn't particularly risky. So I wanted to yeah. do this in public, but yeah, it was pretty vulnerable because if it hadn't worked, then well, I would have... All your projects work, Seth. You know that. Your, all your projects work. Well... Hey, well, some more than others, but no, I, I thought. Here's the question: it, Did you yeah. did I send you the big book? Did you get it yet? No, you didn't. No, you no, you uh, didn't. I'd love to. I'd love to have send, a copy. I I apologize. Here's the thing: the uh, big book. The big book weighs seventeen and a half pounds, and cool. it's, eight, it's eight hundred and fifty pages, and it has two covers. And on one side, the cover says this might work, and the other side says right. this might not work. And if you open it on right. the this might not work side. It's a list for page after page of all the projects I've worked on that have failed. It's a partial oh, really? list. It's a list of things like almost getting arrested by a vice president of AOL when I offered to go to their headquarters and apologize for something we'd screwed up. It's mm-hmm. talking about getting uh, 800 rejection letters in a row when I first got started, etc. So there's a long list of failure, which is a key part of what Vias for Vulnerable is about, which is it's certain to work, then it's not innovation. If it's not innovation, then it's not art. That this might not work is precisely yeah. what we do. You know, you, you draw at least one cartoon every single day. And, every day. Every and, day. Al- and almost all of them are great, but a lot of them aren't. And that's yeah. why it's art, because you're not guaranteed that you're going to get it right. I mean, I'm supposed to ask you as an interviewer asking an author what the reaction's been to the book. That's a standard question. But honestly, Seth, I would I would almost think you would say, I don't really care. Because isn't that one of the lessons from all this, that if you care too much and you worry about how people react, you stop making art and you produce boring drivel that, that tries to please everyone? Welcome to my old career in advertising. That's how it was. <laughs> you know, Todd, yeah. it's, a, it's a great question and it's a tricky line to walk. Art that doesn't interact with the world isn't art. It's merely a hobby in your attic. It's not art until you've transferred some of the emotion to someone else. So there's this distinction between being aware of what happens to your art and caring about what happens to your art. If someone doesn't get the joke, I'm okay with that. If someone feels like I rubbed them the wrong way, I'm delighted by that. I don't want everyone to like my work because if they did, it wouldn't be challenging enough. On the other hand, I'm aware of how people respond and react to it because being aware helps me sharpen my pen for the next time. It's funny because I remember like some hater on Twitter, one of these uh, professional troll people, was like started like laying into my work, and I kind of went. There are doodles on the back of business cards. It doesn't matter if they're good or not. <laughs> yeah, as opposed to, uh, 
for example, you, Seth, I mean, I've known you for a long time, and I know you're very successful, but I also know you live simply and frivolously. You live below your means. You live modestly. You don't, you're, not, you're not like Mr. Bling by any stretch of the imagination. And that kind of keeps you, that gives you a lot of room to maneuver with your work without, because if you had like a big 80-foot yacht to pay for every month, it'd be more complicated. You'd have to like, I don't know, become a TV personality or something. But because you because you keep your like and and I don't mean just standard living. I also mean with, with the art of uh, the business cards, for example. Because it's such a simple format, it doesn't matter if it's if, it's, if a cartoon doesn't work out. It's okay because it only took me ten minutes to do. If I spent like three months doing it, then that'd be a problem. But even then, it wouldn't matter because I would have learned something. So I don't know. I, but I think you have to, you know it's with. Um, with people, you have to, yeah, I agree with you. It's great if you can provoke them in the right way, and if they don't like it, you can learn something from it. But I, I think I think it's a joy just to kind of keep on having that dialogue between the potential, you know, with, with the world and yourself, you know, and just trying to push the edges of that. Well, I think so. you do. I think you do know you're you're being a little <clears throat> self-effacing here. The, the reason that great products often come from garage startups as opposed to Hewlett Packard and Oracle. Is because mm-hmm. everyone at Hewlett Packard and Oracle is saying we have too much to lose, and right. you're not supposed to go into a meeting and say this might not work. But right. if you're, you're if you're living on rice and beans, you don't have a lot to lose. So you're right. correct. You, I learned early on that I loved doing this and I wanted to keep doing it. And the only way I was going to be able to keep doing it is if I never got to negative numbers in the balance. Because if I got to negative numbers, I had to go get a job. So I've organized. Yeah. The, the expense side of my life. So failure is totally fine. And in fact, something that I look forward to because it shows me that I've gotten to an edge. And if we're not right. at the edge, then we're not exploring. Hugh, you've made a, right. you've made a life out of making art. How do others find that path? I mean, is, is it as simple as falling in love with your work? I mean, you kind of believe that work is love, yes? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, it's funny. I was kind of, I was kind of like, uh, and Seth may, Seth and I may have like, Kind of theological differences about this, but I, I, I did this tweet yesterday, and I, I said all art is religious art, whatever your religion may be, and so work as love as religion. Not, not. I don't mean like literal kind of monotheistic religion per se, but just kind of like a way of expressing beliefs. I don't. I've always loved drawing and always wanted to do it. Um, one of the reasons I did the small business card thing was I, because I could do it at a bus stop or on the, on a train or at Starbucks or in a bar means I could always, I could hold down a normal job at the same time. I didn't have to like move to Tribeca and start oil painting and get, you know, you know, leave my girlfriend and go to India. You know, I could just like have a normal life and do it, I guess. I don't see, and as soon as I get older, I realize how life, how short life is. Uh, I don't see the reason not to do it because just so I can become a VP at Hewlett Packard, you know, or uh, Purina, you know, it's just... Although that's a perfectly good way to spend one's life, I suppose, for some people. I don't know. I mean, we have the desire to do it. And and what I always say is, well, just get up early and find, you know, an hour before everybody else and just spend an hour just doing it and do it in a way that you're not going to bankrupt yourself and you're not going to, like, ruin the rest of your life. And then, and then, if you know, you do it for an hour a day for six months, well, maybe after a year you'll be doing it two hours a day, maybe three hours a day. And then, you know, I mean, it took me about... 10, 15 years to do that. Just like starting off an hour a day and working up. 
I got there eventually. So, I mean, I don't... I mean, people think they have to have, like, well, I can either have a, I can either have a job and feed my family or do what I really love. And I, and I don't think... I don't think that's true. I think you just have to keep on tweaking it. Work, you know, refining your craft and then tweaking the business model to get it right. But, but I, I don't think it starts with some kind of drastic kind of Herculean drama queen, quit my day job and leave my wife and do all that stuff. I don't think you have to do that. Seth Godin and Hugh McLeod will return after this short break. Have you ever noticed that marketing firms are either way too strategic or way too creative? Henderson Shapiro Peck understands the importance of both. A collaborative group of marketing strategists, designers, and writers creating brand experiences of all kinds. Relationships are built project by project. Far from traditional, just north of Atlanta, Henderson Shapiro Peck. Strategic, creative, marketing. Find us at hendersonshapiropeck.com. Seth, I think one of the most profound lines in the book is the idea that this is your chance to create imbalance, which then can lead to connection. Uh, We all know that imbalance freaks out most people. Speak more to that idea. Todd, you know, it's it's interesting because you and I are speaking truth to power a lot. But I think more than that, we're speaking truth to fear. We did, um, I did, I did this worldwide meetup thing a few weeks ago. We're doing it again in February. It's this free event that takes place in more than a thousand cities around the world where people are getting together and standing up and for 140 seconds talking about something they made. Standing up in front of strangers and saying, here, I made this. And what's fascinating to me, a lot of people are afraid and they're making excuses even for why they can't stand up for 140 seconds and honestly talk about something that they made or that they care about. And it goes back to this idea of imbalance, that industrialists create balance. Industrialists polish and perfect and extract productivity and profit. Well, we're in the post-industrial age now, and the only people who are getting treated properly are those who are creating imbalance. We're creating imbalance in terms of being generous in terms of opening doors, in terms of shining light, that people, you know, the professional cartoon world looked at the fact that Hugh McLeod has given away 10,000 cartoons for free, and they're shocked and stunned and chagrined and angry. Uh, but that, imbal- yeah. that imbalance that he has created has enabled him to write two bestsellers, three bestsellers, make a ruckus, and make a living. Yeah, yeah. but, but it, it's funny because like I, you'll see this a lot of like online conversations, like on Twitter and places that you know some people think there's like like kind of platonic answers floating in space that you just haven't found yet. And in fact, there aren't any answers. There's just organic results. You know what I mean? It's like you know people you know people think that there, there's like some kind of system like all all governing system, like some invisible validation committee out there telling you what to do that knows what the right thing to do and you just have to do the right thing and hopefully they'll agree with you so you won't be unemployed. And actually, you know, like, you know, a lot of it's organic, a lot of it's random and you have to kind of like, you know, to paraphrase, you know, Nassim Taleb, you know, you've got to be kind of anti-fragile. You've got to kind of like try different things and say, okay, that didn't work. 
let's try something else. That didn't work, let's try something else. But, and if you, and I think where people get feared, I think, and certainly from people in my background, is they started, like, they started liking status before they found out what their pure joy was. They liked being vice president. They liked belonging to the country club. They liked owning the BMW. You know, and so that kind of, they liked being a husband. And so that, that kind of got them on the kind of material trail very early on, which means they had to, they had to like go get a job with Quaker Oats or whoever, or go get a job with uh, Halliburton or whoever. And I think, I think, you know, take, I, I call it taking the early money. I think a lot of people do that. And then by the time they're our age, they're kind of like, oh dear. <laughs> I never actually got to do anything I really wanted to do except for buy the occasional motorcycle. Seth, do you think there's ever going to be a day when most people will realize that the ickiness of creating and the feeling vulnerable and the feeling uncertain is actually the the really really good stuff? I mean, that's kind of what you're saying in the in the in the in this book and the Icarus Agenda, and frankly, a lot of your writing that that's that's the stuff you're going to remember on your deathbed. Uh, most people, no, that's not going to happen. Yeah, in my li- not gonna, I agree. Not, I about, agree. not in my lifetime. But you know what? I don't care about most people when I do my work. I care about a few people. These are people who are open or capable or interested in hearing what I have to say and maybe do something about it. You know, some people uh, see the stack of Vias for Vulnerable at Barnes & Noble and buy eight of them because they're generous enough to understand that seven people in their life will benefit. And some people look at that stack and walk on by because they're stuck or afraid and they don't want to change things. And if I was worried about the people who walked by, I'd never make anything that's interesting. Why is there such confusion about hard work versus doing something that's hard and risky and meaningful? Seth, I've heard you explain that that was the message that some people took from Lynchpin that, well, I'll just outwork everyone to become indispensable. Talk about that debate. So let's understand how industrialism works. You buy labor from people. And the more they produce per hour, the more money you both make. And so there's a 150-year history of creating a culture where we say the way you benefit yourself and your boss is by creating more output per hour and working more hours. But that has been replaced by emotional labor, which is voluntarily doing work you don't feel like and voluntarily taking risks that you do not have to take. And so what we end up doing is working for people who pay attention to what time we get in in the morning and pay attention to how late we stay at night and pay attention to how long it takes us to answer an email on our BlackBerry, when in fact the winners and losers are determined not by how many hours, but by how hard the work was. And hard means risky, hard means scary, and hard means you might get it wrong. Yeah, and I think, I think there's sort of different companies have like different kind of fail cultures. I mean, some it's kind of like funny how like having lived in England for many years in Britain, how failure is way more frowned upon there than it is in America. Because in in Europe, you know, one is only as good as one's social position, whatever that means. Whereas in, in America, it's like it, it kind of has a bit more uh, bounce back somehow, and it's. Um, and certainly in my own work, when I, when I work with, with, with clients, you know, when I, when I work with big companies, there's always like that kind of, I call it the wall of fear, you know, the, the person inside the company who's just like scared of this stuff and just kind of tries to push back on it. Not because I'm wrong or the work is bad, but because it's just like, there's no kind of metric. He has, it doesn't belong in his, his metric. It, he does, his metrics, it, there's no metric for what I'm doing. And so 
if it can be measured, they can't understand it somehow. And, and, and you're saying what takes fear and work and the hard work is not a metric. It's a... Uh, it's an emotion. Seth, I, uh, if you were to ask me what my favorite letter in this book was, I would tell you it's, uh, it's uh, one buttock playing, Ben Zander's idea of this one buttock playing. It's probably my all-time favorite TED presentation. How do people apply a one buttock philosophy to their daily lives? When, when I ran the, uh, the MBA program in my office for free for six months and nine people moved to New York to sit at my desk every day, I bet everything the third day of the program, we went an hour north of here and I rented cross-country skate skis and I taught people, several of whom had not really seen snow before in their life, how to ski on skate skis. The entire sport involves leaning forward almost to the point where you're going to fall on your face. And once you do that, you start moving. And fortunately, all nine of them figured out how to ski and all nine of them had their lives changed as well because... Once you feel that feeling, the feeling of being off balance and leaning forward to the point where you're about to fall on your face, that feeling is the feeling of being alive. That feeling is the feeling of being on stage at TED or performing Beethoven in a way that's never been performed before. And yes, you can do that if you're a nurse and you can do that if you're a purchasing agent. You can do that if you have two employees or if you work in a matrix organization because what it involves is looking another human being in the eye and connecting with them and being open with them and being vulnerable in the moment to understand what is at stake. Because if all you do for a living is what you're told, then I am sure that your boss is going to find someone cheaper than you to do it sometime really soon. You're somebody to me who just is always trying to get other people to raise your game. You know what I mean? You're always trying to say, look, it doesn't have to be this way. You know, you only live once. You're only alive when you're doing something you care about. So why aren't you doing something you care about? Because everybody wants to be alive. In your early days before you became like an author, like back when you were like working with Yahoo and everything, I mean, how did you survive working in a large company? I mean, obviously you didn't stay there. <laughs> you moved on. But I mean, I mean, what advice would you give somebody like working in a big company who has a lot of passion but you know, faces a lot of potential pushback? Well, this, this arc for me started when I was 17 years old in, okay. northern, in northern Canada teaching 10-year-olds uh, how to paddle a canoe by themselves, a 17-foot-long vehicle on a lake. And if you've never done it before, you really don't understand the art of it. You can Google it and see what style canoeing looks like. And I learned from a guy who learned from the person who invented it. And what I discovered is that it got to the heart of what it meant to be afraid. And that if I could help somebody learn how to sit in a boat by themselves and fight the wind and do something beautiful that they had never conceived that they could do before, they were mm-hmm. going to be transformed. And, you know, 30, 40 years later, and I still get email from those people. And so when I was at Yahoo, that's what I was doing. And my boss didn't like me from the first day I got there, um, but that was okay with me, that the goal of Yo-Yo Dine and the goal of my work there wasn't to figure out how to sell more American Express cards or Red Bull. Uh, the goal is to surround yourself by people who are on a journey and to help them make that journey with more gusto and make more of a ruckus because what else is there? Yeah, exactly. Well, actually, I used to go canoeing in northern Ontario in, in birch bark canoes. I used to go canoe portaging and all that stuff. Wow. So I've done it. <laughs> and it is, it is actually beautiful, but it's also, especially on rivers, it's very dangerous. 
and there's a certain there's a certain art to it, and there's a certain joy to it. And it's funny because it's not the fastest way to get around. And I remember this: we, we and the kids would be canoeing, and then it's like some some guy would come by in a houseboat with a keg of beer and all that, and and you know all the probably with a jacuzzi on board the houseboat, and we like <laughs> and we watch it, you know, and we watch them like just sail on all, all by, and you know we didn't envy them because they did not have the serenity. Uh, even though they had all the luxury and they, they had the speed and they had all the modern conveniences, they didn't have the bliss of actually being in a canoe in nature in Ontario in July. <laughs> exactly. And the serenity of it. And it's just funny because I think we, you know, I think I think we, we I, I know, I know the the business of the business of business is to quote unquote get results. And I, and I, I like working with Rackspace because they have a certain kind of. Uh, one of my clients is because the people I work with in there, you know, they really want to do something meaningful with their lives. They don't, and, you know, they use the business to achieve that. It's not just about, well, I saw more witches this month. I'm a better person than I was last month. You know what I mean? And everything being measured in metrics. And Well, it's another really important idea from this book is, it, and another thing that freaks out the guy in the Brooks Brothers suit sitting in the cube is this idea that mattering is more important than focusing on quality. Explain that, Seth. Yeah. Well, quality is, by definition, meeting specifications. Phil Crosby and, uh, and Deming made it very clear that quality is not about Louis Vuitton it's not about caviar. It's about, is this exactly what I asked for? Well, quality is fine in a pacemaker, and I prefer quality in all my airline interactions as well. Um, I, I, I do not want to be surprised in any way by the airline. But most of us will never own an airline, and most of us will never make a pacemaker. The rest of us have to instead figure out how to matter. And the way you matter is by doing something that cannot be specified. That when you do work for which there is no spec, then we have expectations for you uh, that we can't possibly have for other people. And you become much less replaceable and much more human when you do that. So when we think about, say, being a mom, a great mom is not a quality mom who is following the Betty Crocker handbook at all times. A great mom is a surprising human connected mom for which the kid will accept no replacement. And I guess the challenge that we all have now that art is more than just drawing or playing the violin is how can we bring that concept to whatever it is we do for a living, whether we're a lawyer, an accountant, or someone who works at a big company. Well, and that's been the, that's been the, the most profound lesson that I've learned from both of you is this notion that how I spend my day and the things that I'm doing is in fact art. And, and you know, I produce this podcast and you both understand the, the love and labor that goes into producing that and putting that together and promoting it and building it and reaching out and, and, and caring for an audience. It, it, it's a lot of work. And, but when I began to view it as, as art that I'm creating audio art, if you will, it changes your, your point of view on everything. And, and, and it, it changes your whole mindset on what you're trying to do. And I just, I, I'm so grateful to both of you for your years of work uh, in trying to convey that message that, that you can be sweeping the floors at Walmart or you could be 
retired. Uh, I mean, I I love the line in the book that so many disruptive artists have been youngsters, even the old ones. I mean, we can we can all do this, right? I I recommend a a movie. My favorite movie at the moment is called Jiro Dreams of Sushi, which is about this 85 year old Japanese guy who just makes sushi all day long. Which to me would be like really boring, but this guy has like three Michelin stars. He's 85 years old, and he's he's totally into it. And it's and I was kind of like thinking about you know a lot of people I went to college with and went to school and high school with, you know most of us a lot of people you know did okay and made a good living, but nobody actually mastered anything really except for like you know, maybe uh, sitting in meetings and being bored. They mastered that, <laughs> not falling asleep in meetings. But I was kind of like thinking. If you can like take a profession, whether it's working at Walmart or being a cartoonist or being an author like Seth or being a lawyer and like really become a, a master at it. And when when I say a master is when the people who are the people who matter in your industry care about what you say. Uh, then 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 you have a certain kind of serenity and job security you just don't have just by working longer hours. Seth, do you have any comment there? No, I think you nailed it. And, you know, talking about the podcast world, your podcast is generous and smart and connected. When we think about something like Mark Marin, who is the godfather and hero of most podcasters, he has well over a million regular listeners and he's built an entire career only because his podcast is shocking and surprising and not like, at least when he launched it, any other podcast. It didn't sound like a podcast. It didn't run like a podcast. And so one person would say to another, you got to go listen to WTF. And that act of going overboard is what artists always do. Well, well, gentlemen, it breaks my heart, but we're out of time. Seth, how can people, how can people connect with you and learn more about your work? Well, the the easiest uh, overview with lots of free videos and links and stuff is squidoo.com slash Seth, S-E-T-H. And you can find my blog by Googling Seth's blog into the Google machine. And while you're at it, please be sure to read Hugh McLeod's book on how to be creative. Um, and you can uh, find a version of it online for free, but you really should just buy a copy. Hugh, how can people connect with you and learn about your work? Well, I'm on Twitter a lot at Gaping Void. Uh, then my blog is at gapingvoid.com. You can Google Hugh Cartoon or Hugh Cartoonist. Let's say, for the record, my favorite Seth Godin book is Tribes. I don't know why, but it is. It's just kind of it was the advice I needed to hear at the time. My, my book is called Ignore Everybody. If you Google how to be creative, you'll see the uh, free online version as well. And that's about it, really. Uh, and, yeah, thanks, thanks, Paul, for having us. Thanks, thank you, Seth, for making the time and being so generous. Yeah, absolutely. I want to thank both of you for your time and your art and the ruckus that you're creating. Thanks uh, thanks for being here. So, all right, my friends, well, that wraps this special edition. On behalf of my guests, Seth Godin and Hugh McLeod, I am Todd Schnick. We'll see you next time on Intrepid Radio.